Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. It's Nico here. Thanks so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that's your time. As always, I promise not to take advantage nor waste that resource that you've given us. So I hope that you get a ton of value out of today's episode. And if you do, send me some feedback. You can do that through either subscribing or leaving a review on iTunes or whatever podcast player you're in, or just saying hi on LinkedIn. All of those ways give me the warm fuzzies. And I'm super, super happy that you're here. If you're new here, I hope that you will listen all the way through and I hope that you will come back and check out other episodes. Today's guest, Anna Siefkin, has spent her entire career making the business case for energy efficiency, clean tech innovation, and building performance as a way to address the urgency of climate change. And she's the inaugural executive director of the Wilton Scott Institute of Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University. Quick hat tip to our mutual friend, Josh Beck, who many of you no doubt have heard here on Suncast before from BCI. And I am really grateful for having gotten to know Anna. We'll talk about some of our fun stories in this interview, so I hope you will enjoy them. And again, if you do like what you hear, you can listen to more than 300 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. As I briefly alluded to in the intro, I've gotten to know Anna over the last year, and uh, the pandemic has had a certain particular impact on our friendship, hasn't it, Anna? Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here today. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I laugh at the fact that we were supposed to meet in person almost exactly a year ago. Yes, a couple of days short of a year. I know. I'll never forget, uh, Anna, you were the person, you hold that card of the person who made it real for me that this pandemic was impacting my life. I'll never forget it. You called me and you said, hey, uh, we're canceling Energy Week. For those who are unfamiliar, CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, has this thing every year called Energy Week. And if I'm not mistaken, it's largest collegiate energy related event. Is that right? Yeah, it's a really massive event that has just grown over the past couple of years. Uh, 2020 would have been our fifth year. We're about to have our sixth year, although virtual. But we have somewhere between 900 and 1,000 folks that join us in Pittsburgh. So those are students and and leaders and um, energy experts from around the world who come into town. And it's a panel event It's a single stage, though, because we want everyone to be in every conversation all the time so you don't have to make those choices. But um, it's a pretty intense few days and um, has been wildly successful. So I know we'll talk a bunch about the work that you are doing at Carnegie Mellon and the uh, CMU Energy Week is one example of ways that you and your team, and you have a tremendous team, have curated the kinds of conversations that do exactly what your bio uh, purports to make the case for the kinds of technology that accelerate, uh, accelerate addressing climate change. Ironically, and it, and it wasn't entirely planned this way, but I've got in, in this month of programming, I've got two amazing female Duke grads that both work, uh, have worked at ICF. That's right. That's right. Ann Choate is amazing. And so I'm so glad that you get to spend some time with her. I spent many years with her. So always good to catch up with an old friend. Indeed. Well, let me back up a few years and try to get a sense of the underlying rationale behind your lifelong focus on 
sustainability. Was there anything about your childhood in particular that for you stands out as illustrative of why sustainability is at the core of what you do? You know, my first job, it turns out, was uh, delivering the newspaper. So I, I was on my bike uh, delivering the Charlotte Observer. And it was specifically so that I could help my family pay our energy bill. And that is not lost on me. It's been sort of this kind of ongoing thread with energy and sustainability. Um, I just remember that very vividly in my in my past. I was always into and interested in sort of ecology and environmental issues, but they weren't things that you could study as easily in school as you can now. I guess I did my best with activities outside of the classroom to kind of push forward. I don't have a formal degree in, you know, this kind of work. It didn't exist in the way that it does now. The Nicholas School wasn't around when you were at Nicholas, Duke? Yeah, Duke did not yet have the Nicholas School. And so I studied and learned kind of on my feet, like in the trenches. You know what I love as well? And I had not made this connection until maybe even just prepping for this call, even though you and I have had a dozen calls in the last year, your decade of stewardship in the North Carolina education system and how seminal that must be now, having returned back to the education sector for your job. How did Teach for America and your work there prepare you for the kinds of roles you were going to have? Yeah, it's a it's a really great question. And I think that when you're a classroom teacher, and I did my my student teaching in Compton and then taught in Eastern North Carolina for two years, you learn how to think on your feet. Um, you learn how to present your ideas. You learn how to take information and put it into digestible bits. Based on your audience, it's all about target audience, right? How are you going to convince, change hearts and minds? And so that's what we're doing now is changing hearts and minds. So when you're working with a group of high school students, that is what you are doing day in and day out, year after year, summer included, right? You're you're helping students to kind of get from one place to another. Same thing that we're doing now. How do you get people who are thinking one thing to think something completely different over a course of time? And now, interestingly enough, it's just accelerated. So Teach for America was an incredible experience to be involved. And, you know, it's been fascinating to watch those students um, because some of them I still keep up with. I quietly follow them just to see where, where they are. I do have a favorite student. And I can't call him a favorite student because how do you pick between all your students? But when he was a young kid, I saw a lot of talent. And now he's running a company called Cognition. His name is Andreas Forslund. Shout out to Andreas. And it's looking specifically at virtual reality and communication for people who can't communicate on their own. So how do you help enable communication for stroke victims and folks with dementia? Have you reached out to him? Is there a connection there for the, I mean, Carnegie Mellon's one of the world renowned, as is Duke, virtual reality center. We've talked about having him come and talk as a part of our neuroscience program, just because it is this um, startup technology that has sort of sprung from experience. And so many of the startups that we work with, it's just a person had an idea because something they experienced in this particular case. And I knew his mother, right? I knew his family. His mother had issues when she was in the hospital. She couldn't communicate. And so he created a way for her to do that. So many of our startups happen in that way. And now working with startups, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, how do you get to the root of the idea? What's the problem you're trying to solve? And what's your connection to it that makes you better at figuring this out than someone else? Well, I have a bunch of questions that I want to ask you around entrepreneurship. And I'll save that for the moment where we talk a bit about the Scott Institute. Obviously, that's the bulk of the work that you're doing now. You go from teaching to essentially helping found the e-commerce side of Home Depot. Is that right? How did- yeah, so I, I had done a couple of different jobs in marketing um, after I finished Teach for America because it's a two-year commitment. And at the end, um, there are two paths for someone who does Teach for America. You can either become continue being a teacher or do some sort of teacher administration, or you can become a lifetime advocate for the education. So I chose the lifetime advocate and started different parts of my career. Interesting, as you mentioned, I'm now back to teaching classes at Carnegie Mellon. 
I had been doing these different jobs and uh, someone that I knew from Duke um, suggested, I, I called her and I said, look, this startup that I'm working at, because I was working at a startup at the time, pre-IPO, she said, well, send me your resume within five minutes. So I did. And um, lo and behold, I was the last person hired to help launch the original homedepot.com e-commerce website. No way. So there were no e-commerce websites really in the country. This was sort of a, a race to be the first. And so, you know, certainly Walmart was doing it. Target wasn't there yet. Since nobody's looking at your LinkedIn right now, I'll just fill in the blank here. It's roughly February 2000. Correct. So, um, you know, because I was the last person hired on that team, because uh, they were pulling together editors, they had, you know, merchants and buyers, but they needed people to help create the content so that customers could understand what they needed to know to buy the products that they were used to buying in a store. Well, how do you set up a website from the very beginning, right? Because this was so early. So I was the last person hired on that team. And because I was the last person, I got all of the products that no one else had taken. Decor was taken, kitchen and bath was taken. I got insulation and windows and stair parts and roofing. Well, lo and behold, all of that becomes energy efficiency. So when blackouts and brownouts started happening in California, which was right then in the 2000, 2001 time period, Home Depot was trying to figure out what could we do? How can you help people save money? How can you help them reduce their energy bills when there's all this chaos happening around them? Sounds kind of familiar right now. But we put together a little mini website uh, that was sort of DIY content. And the next, next thing I knew, environmental programs was standing in my cube saying, who are you and what is this? And how can we get this to be something else? And between a Friday and a Monday, I was moved into environmental programs. And then within a year, I became the buyer for environmental products. Oh, my goodness. Uh, sitting in the electrical department. CFLs were kind of starting to be a thing. CFLs were kind of becoming a thing. But the, uh, you know, at that point, CFLs were like it was a, it was a new technology, but it lasted so long. Right. Which is for us in energy efficiency, that's what we want. But at the time, it was like, why would we not want incandescence? Because that's like something that really builds the basket. It's like yeah, something else exactly. that people need. And it brings them back to the store because their light bulb dies. So convincing someone, changing hearts and minds, like how do you convince people that it's not a bad thing for people to have something that at the time was, well, at that point, it was wildly expensive, right? We hadn't been able to bring the price down on a CFL. But what we also knew is that there was a technology right behind it, which was the LED. So we saw behind the covers, we you know behind the curtains, we saw all of the products before they were being developed. It was a fascinating time, but it was still really early. So people weren't quite ready. Like your average customer outside of California didn't understand what energy efficiency was. They weren't thinking about it. It wasn't- They weren't re remodeling their home with it as a concept. They still wanted those bright, twinkly lights in their kitchen remodel that are really hot and not very energy efficient. So now we actually, we changed that. And so much of the work that we did and that I've been doing since then through the Energy Star program and through other sort of voluntary programs has been taking the decision out of the customer's hands, basically making it so they don't know what they're getting. They don't know that they're getting a better product. We're raising the floor. So was this the early, the way, and I'll use CFLs, but there are other products that you probably give good examples of that where there were market mechanisms created that basically helped me buy a CFL at the same price as an incandescent and then you incentivize it in other ways. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Were they, in helping those decisions happen? Uh, we were. I mean, those were, there were incentives that came from the federal government. There were incentives that came from st state government. There were utility companies. There were manufacturing markdowns. There were any number of ways that that you could reduce the price but it's interesting if you're really looking to do behavior change, those pricing decreases are hard because if someone gets really used to buying something at a lower price, you can't actually get them to pay the actual price. Right. Yeah. I talked about Chuck when he came on talking about the LED uh, wave. You mess up the value proposition and they don't understand that. We do this in solar all day long. Anna, what are you talking about? <laughs> get solar because it's going to save you money. Right. Condition so our message. Body. The message actually is this will save you money, but it's a way of getting that product 
out into the marketplace so that manufacturing can get behind it, so that buying power can get behind it. And then ultimately, it's helpful for all of us, which again, it goes back to that concept of how can you raise the floor, just take out all of the worst products so that the only choices are better and best. And that's what the strategy was that we were working on then. That's the strategy behind Energy Star. It's like, how do you tighten the aperture? How do you increase the efficiency of particular product categories? And there were many of them, like 60 different product categories that we worked on. How do you make those changes so that customers don't have to make that decision? Because when somebody's buying a new product, their top five things are, do I like the color? Do I like the way it looks? Do I like the way it's going to... They don't think about performance. So building in performance was an important part of product development. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up, especially in Women's History Month, given that it just coincidentally happens that we're now going to publish your episode in, in March. There's something interesting that you did at Home Depot that got the attention of New York Times. That's right. One of the jobs that I had, and, and, I, and I, I loved working at Home Depot. You cut my arm and I'll bleed orange, right? It was a great, great company, very entrepreneurial. And so I helped take their clinic program from a completely decentralized clinic program where every store was like figuring out what they wanted to do on Saturday morning to bringing it all into a centralized so that every store was doing the same thing every week, right? It makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, seasonally when you should talk about doing indoor tile projects, we launched a program called Do It Herself, um, which was a female oriented the idea wasn't was never to bring out pink tools. It was actually to empower women to build the stuff that they so they wouldn't have to rely on someone else. Like who wants to rely on a handyman to tell you what you need to do? You want to be the handy woman. And so that was the concept. You know the thing Anna for me as I I just feel like every time I get on the uh, on the phone with you, I learn more and and am able to connect more dots about how unbelievably intentional. And I don't know how true this is about your career, but how it seems that everything is so intentional. And you're also just incredibly good at creating and looking for value in hidden places. You know, I'm sure that was something that was valuable for ICF, uh, which is where you went uh, from Home Depot. But, you know, one of the normal questions I ask here that I didn't start with for you is gets to the heart of that seed of what got you into, you know, energy, clean energy in particular, most of our audience is looking at clean energy as their pathway to uh, success and career satisfaction. I see that you worked at ICF. Obviously we just talked with Anne and, and she talked a lot about ICF's work. You know, it's not abundantly clear how you got to Carnegie Mellon from Home Depot. Can you walk me down that path of progress? In my personal life, I'm part of a true partnership. And so my initial ambition was to move to Atlanta, Georgia. And my husband, well, now husband came with me. And then we've had two big moves since then. So we moved from Atlanta to Washington, D.C. for a position that he was taking there. And that's how I found ICF. Interestingly enough, it was at a, you know, somebody's birthday party, right? Ran into someone and they said, you did what for whom? (laughs) To which I said, well, I'd love to keep doing this kind of work. I ended up at ICF doing what I did for Home Depot, but for every major uh, US-based retailer. No way. We would would go to the retailer and we would talk about Energy Star, talk about the importance of energy efficiency, talk about the importance of the branding campaign and working with the the EPA and the DOE was amazing. And then, you know, we would go to the manufacturers and say, okay, so the retailers are going to make space if you make the product, right? So if we did the, the, you build it, if you build it, they'll buy it. If you buy it, they'll build it. So I did that for about nine years. I worked on utility programs. I had the great fortune of working with an amazing team, not only on the Energy Star program, but um, at, you know, we, we Energies and with Baltimore Gas Electric. So really looking at how do you help retailers get the best products in the hands of, of customers? So not just at the retail level, but all the way up the chain. Like how do you How do you make the product better so that what someone is able to choose from is a better product in the first place so that they think about it a little bit less, right? It just performs better. And then the next move was to Pittsburgh. So again, trailing spouse, um, a true partnership. And once we arrived, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I had 
a really, really strong affinity for commercial buildings. I had been able to do through my work with EPA and DOE some work on in the commercial building sector, um, but I certainly wasn't an expert. And so the folks at Green Building Alliance, which is the U.S. Green Building Council local chapter, I got to work with them when I got to Pittsburgh. So I helped them um, to take the 2030 district, which is a voluntary commercial building efficiency program that puts out a set of goals and then works in a cohort model to help buildings go from like through a trajectory. Like how do you take your your energy efficiency from one thing to the next? And I did that. Um, I helped them grow that program. And then when this opportunity came up at Carnegie Mellon, it sort of tied so many of the things together. Product development, commercialization, understanding of the built environment, energy efficiency. And I just had the good fortune of being able to find something that sort of tied those different things together. One thing I want to highlight here that is uh, is amazing to me, you know, folks might think, gosh, well, almost nine years at ICF doing a job that you loved where you were really you know, uniquely and um, well positioned to do that job. You got to ask, like, if it were 2020 instead of 2005, well, 2019, forget pandemic, but 2019 instead of 2005, would you have kept that job? It seems like Anne is uh, and the team at ICF is able to employ folks in a virtual way. You know, was that something I... Am I reading between the lines there that like, because you moved four or five, six hours away to Pittsburgh, uh, I can't remember how far it is from DC. It's like, it's, uh, it's only four hours. There were conversations that we had, but one of the things that I knew about Pittsburgh, as soon as I got here is that it has a very different style and I wanted to live and work in the same place. So I know that Anne has the great fortune of, of living in Philadelphia, working with ICF. ICF has offices all over, including now Pittsburgh. We have um, folks who work for ICF here in Pittsburgh. And they are my great business colleagues. I love to see them because we're all alums. Um, but I really wanted to understand kind of the local landscape and get a lot more involved. And, and one thing that people will say about me now is that I am this, I, I try to be a really strong cheerleader for the region. You don't try, you are a cheerleader for the region. <laughs> well, there's this, there's this grit and this earnestness and this enthusiasm around taking um, a place that was regionally depressed around the loss of industry in the early 80s didn't even have the chance to feel 2008 like the rest of the country did um, because that it already happened, right? And there's there's space here. You can buy a house. There's water. There's mountains. There's this incredible university community. So it's not just Carnegie Mellon. There's 33 universities in the region. It's sort of like this mecca, um, particularly now with all the, the autonomous vehicle work that we have. I mean, autonomous vehicles started at Carnegie Mellon, 1983. There's so much activity that's happening around technology development. I literally was just like, I just want to be a part of this local thing. And now the local thing has become, the regional thing has become the national thing, right? Because when Bill Peduto, our mayor got really involved uh, when Pittsburgh was called out uh, in reference to the Paris Climate Accord. Our mayor fully embraced that and said, you know what? Don't talk about Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh is actually taking climate very seriously. And so between the city of Pittsburgh um, being one of the Rockefeller 100 cities, like there's a program um, that Rockefeller um, has that we're a part of, um, Bloomberg's Climate Challenge. We're in that program. So there's all these different activities. And we're at this sort of critical juncture here where there's so much possibility and you can volunteer and be a part of something. And that is not something that I necessarily was experiencing in other places. I mean, I've lived in a lot of big cities. It's very hard. This is a great size of city to be able to get involved. So ICF was extraordinarily generous with me, um, and I really, really loved working for that company. But the uh, the appeal of the local market was very strong. Well, let's unpack a bit for the average listener who knows nothing about Pittsburgh's energy sector. You know, when Josh did a little sort of speed dating drinks round at SPI, and you and I got a chance to meet. Uh, which was awesome. And I hope we get in person, in person, in person. It was honestly, 
one of the last times I've gotten to hang out with with real people and uh, drink real beer in, in, in a public setting. You explained a bit for me about, I asked this question, like, I don't, why is there an Energy Innovation Institute at Carnegie Mellon? And oh, by the way, I know it's a big engineering school, but where does renewables factor in here? And Josh just sort of sat back tapping his fingers because he was like waiting for that question all night long. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were, you were wooed by the, the Scott Center for Energy Innovation. Tell me more about that and about the culture of energy and, and, and even startups, but the culture of energy in Pittsburgh and why that matters. So I guess you can start with energy kind of as like big E in the region, right? Pittsburgh, as it turns out, was really the driving force behind, you know, incredible technology innovation historically. So during the World Wars, pre the World Wars, we were, you know, the the center of the creation of steel, the creation of coke, uh, the creation of glass, the creation of aluminum, Right. So we were kind of at the heart of all of this sort of industrial mess. And we were historically known for coal. I mean, when I, I, I live in a community that, from what they tell me, is on top of coal, coal mines right around where I live. So it's been a, an integral part of the history of southwestern Pennsylvania is coal miners and, uh, and that sort of thing. So Carnegie Mellon has this really, really vast array of people working in energy topics. So there are about 170 people that are specifically working on things related to energy. And it's across every single part of the kind of spectrum. So it's it's traditional fuels, efficiency, energy efficiency, building technologies, censoring for methane, and it just runs the gamut. There are folks that are working on silicon technologies. There are folks that are working on catalytic chemistries batteries and fuel cells, electric aviation. So there are so many people working on these topics that the Energy Institute, and it was started by a gentleman named Sherman Scott um, in honor of his father, Wilton E. Scott. This institute was started in 2012, um, and we have a beautiful building on campus. You know, there's seven colleges. So how do you bring together these disparate sort of disparate energy technology technologists all under one umbrella. And it's all meant to inspire collaboration. Um, So we seed fund internally. So we talk about like, how do you spark innovation? Well, you provide a little bit of funding for people to go after a passion project that they have. Many people have passion projects that they have had recently or had 10 years ago or 20 years ago, much like when we started this energy stuff at Home Depot and people weren't quite ready. How do you inspire them to take those ideas to the next level? So the Scott Institute was created to physically and metaphorically, because we actually, our building connects, it's like a labyrinth. It connects five buildings in 12 different ways. So how do you connect people to bring them into a conversation? And so that's what the Scott Institute does. We we have sponsored research. We develop partnerships. We do programming, things like Energy Week, uh, webinars and in-person seminars when we can. We have a master's program that sits on our floor. So there's an educational component. We have students involved and we help, we'd love to help them get internships. And we look at innovation because in order for our companies, our faculty, our students, our alumni to be successful, you have to have a robust ecosystem. And so a lot of the efforts that we have are not only inward facing to Carnegie Mellon, but they're outward facing to the region. So how can we create places where people want to stay, where they want to live, where they want to grow their business? Because we're seeing so much activity within a one mile radius of our campus. We want to inspire that in the energy and clean tech space too. And so that's a critical part of our mission and something that we sort of have top of mind all the time. And I want to tie back in as well. In addition to what you're saying, the comment that you made that, you know, on the heels of the climate accord, climate accord, Pittsburgh being called out, Pittsburgh has, just like Detroit, been the focus at a national level of this notion of how do we revitalize a depressed job sector that at one point was easily recognizable as a strong 
export center and strength of industrial might from the United States, right? Detroit and Pittsburgh, hands down, two of our most powerful industrial cities, which meant there's infrastructure existing, not just real infrastructure that manufactures, but there's deep, <laughs> deep pockets of industrial wealth in the area that understand and were a part of the revitalization of our nation in the mid part of the last century and a part of the innovation that led to the industrial revolution. Something that is hard for most folks that, well, it's something that's hard for folks to understand is the relationship that universities in towns like Pittsburgh, namely Carnegie Mellon, but think about most of the deep research-based institutions, they approach entrepreneurship with a really complex relationship, right? Their job is to do this research. They create all this IP, but most universities aren't very good at getting it out on the street. How is Carnegie Mellon looking at IP and business and spinning out these businesses differently? Like maybe explain a bit at the macro level, but also you particularly have been instrumental in helping think through, you know, different financial structures like royalties and attracting talent and investment. So I think it, it actually started at the top um, at Carnegie Mellon. So our president, our provost, they're all entrepreneurs. So we have a very entrepreneurial spirit at the university. And one of the things that we did, and it was quite some time ago, actually, and it was kind of at the forefront of this, is we created an IP structure for faculty members that was not complicated. And so when you have a startup and you're a faculty member or a PhD student, there's a, a very particular path. And so they know exactly what's expected of them. And we're incredibly generous. <laughs> we're very generous um, because we want to enable those technologies to move forward. So there's that part for our faculty. For others in the region. I want to pause here for just one second. For those who do listen to Suncast a lot, I would encourage you to just earmark or bookmark here the conversation we had with Nick Angerer of Soulcast way back in the summer where he talked about how extraordinarily hard it was to get his IP out of the university where he was a doctoral student down in Australia. Proceed. <laughs> <laughs> We've made it very easy. And, you know, one thing that's actually included in that is kind of a revolving door. We will allow faculty members to come back. And I'm not going into, if we really wanted to talk about the details, our Center for Tech Transfer and my very good uh, partner in crime, Reed McManigal, could tell you all about the, the intimate details. But generally speaking, uh, we welcome our faculty back um, with this experience. So then we have not only, you know, a happy person who's been renewed by this experience, but also has the depth of experience of running a company. Yeah. And there are many, many people who are great innovators, but not great entrepreneurs and vice versa, right? It's like you have a great idea, but you don't know how to make it into a business. Well, now we have business savvy technologists who are leading these courses and who are integrated back into our ecosystem with on campus. So they're ready to turn around and actually lend that expertise to others through mentoring programs and through volunteering and helping we have a, an entire system on campus through our Swartz Center for Entrepreneurship, which is within the Tepper School of Business. And they have a, you can take your idea within that incubator for, this is for students, really for students, but you can take it from, you know, locker to tabletop to door within the same space right there on campus. So we see the need um, and we seed the need, right? So we will seed projects both through the Scott Institute programs that I was talking about for our faculty, more generally across other sectors um, through the Swartz Center. We just encourage that kind of um, novel thinking. And then in the region, we partner with the Pittsburgh Regional Alliance, which is part of our Chamber of Commerce. We partner with Innovation Works. We partner with other universities because you know, and Ascender and any of the others in the region, because we have quite a few, we want to elevate and raise the entire region. And so we encourage uh, CMU companies to participate in those, you know, in national competitions. We push them to be part of the American Made Solar Prize, right? Because that's a program that we support as a power connector. 
Um, not only because we learn from the program, we get networking from the program, we help the program, and sometimes our faculty are included in the program. We feel like we are learning and growing and helping. And by doing that, uh, we receive that in kind. And so um, we have been really successful. I mean, we have, it's, it's much easier to point someone to our tech guide, which is on our website, which is cmu.edu forward slash energy. We have a tech guide there that has all of the CMU startups. Um, and we also keep a list of every startup at every stage within the university because people are always interested in those things. And then we have quite a bit of faculty members who, number of faculty members who are interested in in these different and new technologies, particularly things around solar, for a great example, you know, but they're they're looking for funding. They're looking for, you know, how to get started. And so we see it as a part of our role to help them as best we can. Sometimes it's just connections. Sometimes it's finding the Josh Becks and making the introductions. Sometimes it's finding the Nico Johnsons and making the connections. Pardon the interruption. I just want to ask you a question. If you've been listening for the past few weeks, then you've no doubt heard about the unbelievable offer from our friends over at Endium. So what's holding you back? Many of you have gone over to the site. Dozens have filled out the form. But if you're anything like me, you've probably left it open as a tab and you're still holding back. I can't express to you enough how unbelievable this offer is. Get free advice to tune up your Salesforce process from a certified Salesforce MVP, one of the top ranked in the world. So why are you hesitating? Get on it. Go back, fill out that form, get free advice from Geraldine Gray, founder and CEO of Indium. If you didn't listen to her episode number 339, then go take a peek at that episode and better understand what you are missing in your process and how you can truly transform your solar sales process in particular. If you're looking at how to implement Salesforce as a CRM, or if you're trying to really ratchet up your game and implement a broader marketing strategy on the heels of Salesforce, well, then you, my friend, need to head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Indium logo that will take you to their special Suncast audience offer. It's only for us, and this is special for you. It's a free assessment. I can't imagine why you'd say no to that. It's just one more way that we add additional value for you here as a listener to Suncast. So thank you for tuning in. I'd like to introduce you to Mission Minded, 12 Weeks to a Clean Energy Career, the coaching program that we have developed, purpose-built to help transition professionals into the clean and climate tech economy. Folks, you've been listening to Suncast because you want those nuggets. Either you're trying to level up in your career or you're trying to really glean exactly what you need to know to figure out how to transition into this unbelievably fast growth industry. That's why we've developed Mission Minded to help you get the skills and the cohort that you need. But the doors are closing on the next cohort on March 19th. That's right, this Friday at midnight. If you'd like to learn an industry overview of clean energy, transferable skills that will help unpack your IP, ninja skills for LinkedIn that have gained 24,000 followers for me, domain authority, side door networking, negotiating 101 with none other than Chris Voss, and lots of other goodies, then I would encourage you to go check out Mission Minded at mysuncast.com. You can click on the Mission Minded button, fill out the application, sign up for a clarity call, Doors close at midnight on this Friday, March 19th. So don't tarry. This is your opportunity to get the training that you've been waiting for to level up or transition in to the clean economy. Here we go. How do you think about organizing the ecosystem, the echo chamber that helps support the programs that you're working on? One of the ones that you mentioned is Power Connector. Uh, I think of, you know, Trish Cozart comes to mind. I'm sure that you mm -hmm. she with IN2. Yep. You guys have very similar roles, just different organizations, right? Like uh, your job is to stimulate growth and figure out how to find money for it. Yeah. How do you think about finding the the right partners that are going to give you that kind of access? Also, I'm curious in the same breath, whether you think of the work that you do as a local job or 
if it has a broader national focus? Um, so it's definitely a broader focus um, because if we're not bringing further investment to our faculty and our startups, then I'm not sure that we're doing the job that we really could, right? Because I think the overarching important message is that climate change has a sense of urgency that needs to be addressed as quickly as possible in as many ways as possible. Like, I think it's, we have to try a whole bunch of things because we don't know which one is ultimately going to be the most successful. We don't know which faculty member is going to have the next brilliant idea. We don't know which startup is going to have the next best idea. So having the connection points and bringing in the right people at the right times to have the right conversations is absolutely a part of our job. And that makes it very national because we can't be just thinking about our region. I mean, I, I, like I said, I do, I'm a cheerleader for the region. I love it. But at the same time, if the idea were, do I want to have something smaller and local or have something bigger and more impactful, always impactful, how can we get this? And that's why I feel like the work that I've been doing my entire career has all been sort of leading towards accelerating once the time became right. So we were doing this work behind the scenes, and now we are finally in a place where people understand it a little bit better. Unfortunately, it's because their houses are flooding <laughs> and, and like they're feeling the impacts in Norfolk, Virginia, right? We've been talking about it, but screaming from the hilltops doesn't help. You, you actually have to take action. And so, so much of this is about taking action and a startup is action. Getting venture capital is action. It's like moving the needle. And so that, that is the critically important thing for us to be doing. You know, I'm fascinated with, I mean, what occurs to me is this idea that you're engaged in the art of venture capitalism. And I don't know, there's got to be another term for it, Anna, when it is nested under, and I'm sure it exists, I just don't know it. Is there another term for it when it's nested under the sort of the research arm of a, of a university? It's historically been R&D. But now it's moving from bench scale to applied. And so the the kind of money that we're looking for is patient. It can absorb risk because the kinds of technologies that we're looking at take a long time to develop. There's a lot of cycles that go into it. And so what is the money called? I'm not sure, but I do know that it has to have certain <laughs> special attributes. Well, it sounds like the through line for your career really has been making the financial case for sustainability on the whole. Most of us are really interested in the energy sector and the massive transformation happening in the energy sector. What can, in two weeks' time, folks look forward to with CMU Energy Week? And maybe even how are you thinking about it differently than you were a year ago? So a year ago, we were, you know, when everything closed down on March 13, we were supposed to have started Energy Week on March 23. So we were the one of the last things uh, holding out hope that we might actually um, be able to have that event. What we've done is abbreviated a series of highly insightful conversations because we also fully acknowledge that I mean, Zoom is hard. It's hard to, 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 to sit for too long. I'm trying to ask, not ask people to sit for quite too long. But we have some amazing people coming together to give what we're calling brief notes. Again, this idea of let's have insightful 30-minute dialogue um, with some national and international leaders. So we have Jim Skay, who is one of the co-authors from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC who's also with working group number three right now. Um, and so he's going to be talking very specifically about the importance and urgency around global climate change. Catherine Hamilton is going to be there from 38 North Solution, who's been a part of Grid Alliance um, and the Energy Gang. She does a lot of um, talking and she's got some very specific things that she wants to address in terms of climate change. Michael Dorsey is going to be with us. So he'll be talking about energy injustice. So how can we really be thinking about what the future looks like in terms of equity and access for energy? Raj Kapoor is a technologist. Um, he is the chief strategy officer and head of business for self-driving at Lyft, and he's a CMU alum. So we're super excited to have him. Paula Glover, who is the president of the Alliance to Save Energy, 
and the former CEO of the American Association of Blacks in Energy is going to be talking about energy and justice as well. Brian Anderson, who is the director of the National Energy Technology Laboratory, which is in Pittsburgh. So that's the Fossil Energy National Lab. Um, but they're thinking about what we're thinking about, which is decarbonization. So how can they take all of their sector knowledge under a new administration and continue to do the work towards reducing emissions. And then, of course, we have all of our local government officials. So Bill Peduto, who's been an outspoken um, Paris climate advocate, uh, Ritz Fitzgerald, who's our county executive and who's deeply involved in energy-related issues in the region, as well as Grant Irvin, who's our chief resilience officer and the assistant director in our city planning for the city of Pittsburgh, who's been really, really instrumental in the um, Sustainability Directors Network, which is a national network of folks getting together and talking about the importance of this work. So that in itself is like a capsule of what the week looks like. Not even the whole week. Well, that's that's just one day. Oh, my goodness. But we're doing an investor forum on one day where we have startups and we're still looking for investors and startups if you um, if people want to apply for that. We are running the, a pitch showcase for the American Made Solar Prize. So the 20 teams that are still involved in round four are going to be participating. Our students are phenomenal and they're doing a poster competition. So they'll actually be presenting their posters live. So like see the future of this energy thought, right, is having students present on a national stage. So we're excited about what we have coming together. It's a free event. So it's the, the website is cmuenergyweek.org. And, you know, we're excited to be pulling together what's, what's going to be a really great event. We have networking on two of the evenings. So that Tuesday night after those, all of those brief notes, as well as after the American Made Solar Prize event on Friday. So really looking forward to getting together with people, doing the best that we can until we can get together in 2022. We're already putting those dates on the calendar in March. Um, and I think we'll be popping champagne at that point. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. <laughs> For sure. It's going to be uh, absolutely phenomenal. I'm blocking off uh, at least the day of the brief notes uh, but I know for sure the investor forum is going to be fantastic as well. I presume all this is, is going to be accessible for anyone for free that, that signs it up. Is. Yeah, that's amazing. What a, what a phenomenal resource. Anna, you've had a chance to work with entrepreneurs across all spectrums. Uh, you've worked with major, obviously major uh, companies, every retailer that was trying to figure out how to do what you, what you did at Home Depot. What would you say are some of the key things that early stage technology startups need the most or perhaps don't implement early enough? I always want to make sure that there's a problem that's being solved and there's a target audience that's understood. Because if you create something, but you don't have an audience to buy it or to use it, or they already have something that's working just fine, then you're, you're really not going to get from point A to point Z, right? And that's what we're looking for. Things that are going to move quickly, move fast, be effective, and have appeal, right? So I find that the most important thing for people to really figure out is what are they trying to accomplish and why are they doing it better? So that for me is the, like the number one thing. It's like, what's your point of difference? Like how, how is this going to make the biggest impact? I love the work that's happening with Breakthrough Energy Ventures, right? That whole organization is just singularly focused. And that singular focus has made them like incredibly powerful. So how can we do that in other parts of the country with fewer resources, right? And what are they singularly focused on for those who aren't familiar? Carbon, carbon reduction. Like how can we r reduce um, carbon through any activity? And what's which one is going to, how can you demonstrate? So it's like everyone is competing to do the exact same thing. Well, I look forward to uh, Energy Week. I've got a few other things I wanted to ask you about here as well, but we'll link to that cmuenergyweek.org on the website, on our show notes as well. Uh, Anna, I have to imagine you get invited. You obviously invite a lot of folks to come and speak in the various webinars and events that you guys run. But were you invited to speak on one of the world's largest stages? What would uh, your TED talk be about? So I think it would be about starting where you are 
figuring out how to be as impactful as possible and then taking that ride. Because, you know, I, when I started, I really, I don't know, my husband recently called me a late bloomer. And I thought that was really interesting because for me, it's made perfect sense. Obviously there's energy efficiency, there's energy, there's buildings. It all seems to have this thread of how do we make it as manageable and understandable as possible? Like it's a translation problem. So I would be talking about, you know, how to translate whatever your passion is into action and impact. So I need some time to actually write it, but I think that's probably what the thread would be. Is there a book or two that maybe you've either recommended a lot or gifted uh, a lot that for you have are, are instrumental or, or uh, instructive of the kind of life that you live or want others to live? I don't know. I think it's a little geekier than that. I mean, I'm a big old energy nerd. So my favorite book right now is Project Drawdown. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not even, I've got it right here. It's right here on my shelf. I try to read and absorb as much as I can. And, you know, but life is busy. So I, I, you know, what's on my my bookshelf doesn't necessarily reflect what I'm going to be able to get through this year. Um, But I'm, I'm really interested in things that are going to drive impact fastest. The sense of urgency that I feel, that I feel in my lifetime, that I feel in my kids, that I feel in our community is tangible. And so project, this project drawdown book for me and actually meeting the author was kind of this incredible opportunity. By the way, he came, um, Paul Hawken, came to Pittsburgh and I was his like host for the evening. I drove him around in my little car and, you know, talked to Paul Hawken, who is, you know, doing incredible things. But to be honest, so is Vivian Loftus, who is like the queen of green building who works at Carnegie Mellon. And so is this person and this other person. I mean, there's so many incredible resources around. So, you know, there are great books. I would also say they're really great people. And I feel like, you know, those like learning and hearing from those people has been equally valuable for me. And what a blessing actually through the pandemic that so many thought leaders, uh, so many paywalls have been demolished. So many uh, webinars are now offered for, for free, just the amount of ability and access given to be able to interact with It has been, that part of it has been really interesting. The amount that I've been able to learn through listening in on, and it might be that I have one device doing one thing and a different device like doing another, but I'm hearing it. It's a podcast. It's something that I'm working on. And I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I read every day and I'm reading about what the most important trends are. I'm totally nerding out on you know, some new building technology or something that I see in, you know, smart energy dive or wherever it might be. And so I'm just, I feel like I'm constantly trying to find the people that are going to be having the impact and, and finding places to intersect with them. And that has been something that I've been able to do a little bit differently during the pandemic because my five o'clock hasn't changed, but what I do during that time has. How, how long do you dedicate to reading in the morning? It's usually about an hour and a half. It's good when I'm reading because if I'm not reading, I'm writing somebody an email and it's way too early. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, Anna, thank you so much. You're so generous with your time. How could folks who want to learn more about you engage with you? Where do you like to be found? So actually LinkedIn is my favorite. So I'm Anna J. Seifkin on LinkedIn. That's where I post a lot of our content. That's where we advertise and cross-promote all of our webinars and events. We have them three, four, five times a month, right? So we have a pretty rigorous schedule because we want our students to be actively engaged. And oh, by the way, everyone else too, right? So we, we do a lot of programming. But our website is pretty robust. Um, So it's cmu.edu forward slash energy. And it has information about our programming, our incredible faculty that are working on energy and equity and community and built environment and 
sensing technologies. It really does run the gamut. By the way, I meant to tell you, there's an annual report on the front page of our website. It's not like a financial annual report. It's much more like a, let us show you what we're working on report. It's about 30 pages. It is not light reading. And it's kind of awesome to see what the people are up to at Carnegie Mellon, including we actually highlighted in our last version three of the startups that we started through Carnegie Mellon um, at one of our, one of, we ran a program for uh, the Department of Energy with student teams. And three of those teams are doing amazing, incredible stuff. Gecko Robotics, Hylion, and Robotany, which is now called Fifth Season. So those companies are doing incredible and they started at the Scott Institute. That's so cool. I didn't realize Hylion started there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Anna, I could ask you a million other questions. We'll probably have you back on. And I, I wanted to actually state for the record that I'd said earlier in a couple of weeks at the time of publishing this, the uh, Energy Week will be next week. So if you haven't already, go register at cmu.org forward slash energy or at cmuenergyweek.org. A little easier to remember, but you'll find it in both places. You'll also find it at mysuncast.com, where we will link out in the show notes for this episode to all the things that you've talked about, as we usually do. But let's end today, as we normally do, but with a slight twist. We call this the crystal ball. And uh, maybe if you're listening, you've heard of it before, but you have particular insight and access to kind of where the market is going. So it's a little unfair for you. I, I would love to know. Where do you see disruption happening fastest in the energy sector in the coming one to three years? So you're right. I do have, I have a line of sight. We're going to move towards a, a, like a decarbonization and moving towards zero carbon economies is going to be a thread. It's going to be an important topic. We're going to get there through solar, wider deployment, using our traditional fuels in different ways focusing on emission reduction and, you know, electrification, batteries and storage, fuel cells. We're really moving quickly towards these new economies. And I think that it's a combination of industry, government, government regulation, leadership, and universities, right? And part of our universities, by the way, it's our faculty, but it's also our students and their amazing ideas. So I'm, I'm feeling very positive about the future and how we're going to get there. Because I think that, you know, we got a bunch of brilliant minds that are going to be able to hyper-focus on it now. And that's going to be for the good of all of us. Anna J. Siefkin is the executive director of the Wilton E. Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University. And if you want to learn more, go check out all the things that we'll link to over at mysuncast.com in the show notes for this episode. We've mentioned a bunch of other things, but I, uh, for now, will say thank you so much, Anna. It's always a pleasure to see you. Great to see you as well. Well, there you have it, Solar Warriors. Another awesome opportunity to learn from a pioneer in our industry in many ways, someone who has been able to extrapolate work in the energy efficiency and sustainability sector to help the broader energy industry grow towards the transition that we're all looking for. And from right there in the heart of uh, Steeltown and, and Coal Town in Pittsburgh, it's so refreshing, Anna. Thank you for coming on and telling us all about the way that you have navigated this career transition for yourself and for instructing us on how to find uh, CMU Energy Week. I'm hoping that you all will go to mysuncast.com and check out the show notes for this episode where you can learn all about uh, Energy Week. Click through the links there. And you can also check out the other resources and highlights from this discussion. In fact, from this and every other discussion, as well as the social media links for Anna and the book recommendation that she gave us with Project Drawdown, also one of uh, the encyclopedias on my reading list. And since you're already going to be online, would you do us a huge favor and just share this episode with someone on LinkedIn? Anna and I are both on LinkedIn, as she mentioned, and we would really love it if you would give us your thoughts and, and give us the honor of, of sharing this episode with someone that you think would benefit from it and tag us on it, if you will. I would so appreciate that. Hope that you'll tune in again next week as we continue on our journey through Women's History Month. So grateful for the fantastic 
mavens we've had on the show so far this month. And I look forward to seeing you back here next Tuesday and Thursday for more insightful and tactical and practical advice. Thanks again to our sponsors to help make this content free to you. You can learn more about them and how you could partner with us to help the Suncast tribe and reach thousands of your fellow solar and climate warriors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle. Mm-hmm.